I would just immerse myself in whatever city I'm in, in that group and just talk to people. Um, not because every, every single person is going to know everything, but you'll start getting a sense of what's working, what's not working, who people are, what people are like, how are people negotiating here? And you just, there, there's just some, some intuitive knowledge you want to get from networking. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Penn, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. What's going on, investors? And welcome to episode 250 of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. I can't believe it, but we've hit this major milestone of 250 episodes. Thank you all so much for your active engagement with the podcast. If you guys have found any value with the show, please leave a short review on the Apple Podcast app. It'll take less than a minute of your time, but it'll go a long, long way to support the show. And today we have Chad Carson. Chad is a real estate investor and entrepreneur who has started his real estate investing journey way back in 2003. Chad is well known for his Coach Carson platform, where he helps aspiring real estate investors start their real estate investing journey. His motto is to help others do more of what matters and to help them get out of the nine to five rat race. In this episode, Chad will give us the blueprint to getting started with real estate investing and how we can use these methods to become a millionaire in two years. We'll talk about how we can use technology to source our real estate deals and how to start raising private money for your deals. So if you're just getting started and you want to learn how to become a millionaire real estate investor, then you need to listen to this episode. And by the way, if you are an active real estate investor, then you need to have a solid lender on your team. So if you're looking for a hard money loan, I can help. We do hard money loans nationwide at great rates and can close in 10 to 14 days. So if you're looking for a hard money loan, you can reach me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Let me know that you're a podcast listener and I'll give you a discount on our processing fees. And now on to the show. Chad, thank you so much for being on our show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Let us know who you are and tell us what you do. Yes. Good to be here, Sean. Thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Chad Carson. I live in Clemson, South Carolina, which is in the southeastern part of the United States, kind of halfway in between Charlotte and Atlanta, right in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. And I've been a real estate investor for 18 years now and started off more in the active side of the business, flipping houses, finding deals for other people. I grew into a more of a buy and hold uh, investor, I have a business partner, and the two of us have been doing that together for 18 years. And so now what it looks like for me today is that we have 110 units. Most of those are smaller residential apartments. We've dabbled in a little bit of other stuff as well. But uh, yeah, that's what we have used to produce income. And a lot of what it's been for me is how to create income, passive income so that I can live off of that and travel. And I have two kids and my wife and I've traveled abroad to Ecuador and some different places with our kids to live. So that's, that's sort of my motivation is to have lifestyle, use that income to enjoy life. Yeah, and we've met each other several times through different conferences like FinCon and the Bigger Pockets Conference. Um, so I was wondering, like, how did you even get started with real estate? Yeah, I was fortunate that I had family members who did real estate. So when I was growing up, my dad had rental properties. I think I was probably 12 or 11 when he started buying them. And I think he was just reading books and going to seminars. And so he would go buy these properties at foreclosure sales. So when somebody lost a property at foreclosure, he would either bid on it at the auction or buy it from the bank after they took it back. And so he would get these really nasty properties, like you know, somebody left it four months ago and they left a bunch of food in the refrigerator. And so then you'd walk in in the middle of the summer in Georgia, it was really hot and it would just be like nasty. It smelled horrible and there's trash everywhere. He would drop me and my brother off at these houses and say, hey, hey boys, we'll be, uh, we'll be back in four hours. You clean up this house. And uh, 
we're, we're like, who would do this business? This is horrible. Like this is, so I, I kind of swore off real estate as a kid. And then I was in college and I played uh, football and I got a scholarship to play football at Clemson university. And I was studying biology, had nothing to do with business. I was like, I'm just going to go to be a doctor or do something else. But I started reading some of those books that my dad had, and I just became interested in the idea, really the lifestyle of being an entrepreneur, not just real estate, just the fact that I could be my own boss. I could travel around, work out of a laptop, not have anybody who like told me what to do. I love that idea of that freedom. And so I decided, you know what? I don't think I want to go be a, a doctor after all, or try to go into business for somebody else. I'm just going to do my own thing. And I, he, I was fortunate to be able to kind of ask him, my dad, uh, you know, for some uh, recommendations when I first started. I worked with him for the first year, just finding deals for him. And then the second year, I moved up on my own to South Carolina and started my own business. Was your dad like full-time in real estate before? Or did he have like a full-time job while doing real estate as well? Yeah, he was full-time. He was actually a CPA. So he used to do that prior. And he had a computer programming business back in the eighties when they had like, you know, MS DOS and all sorts of weird, like, you know, just like orange screens on the computers. And uh, so he did, he's an entrepreneur, but my, my mom was a dentist. And so she made really good income as a medical and have her own practice. And the way they just had a partnership basically where she made good income and he was the one who was going to build the wealth for their retirement. And so he would acquire these rental properties while she was really busy at the dental office. And he would manage them and built a little management business around them. And so now they've, they, she's not a dentist anymore. They've retired and they live off their rental properties that they bought. So that's, that was sort of their partnership. Yeah. And even for you, it must have been quite a challenge to like kind of give up what you've been studying for four years to do real estate full time. But it's cool that you had that like guidance from your dad to see that, oh, this is possible. It's not just some. Um, Thing you saw at a seminar, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, that's why I was so, so fortunate because not just, they didn't really push me into it, but I think I was able to observe an entrepreneur behind the scenes and not everybody gets that, you know, like I got to see the good and the bad, you know, there's some really stressful times, as you know, Sean, like being an entrepreneur and they're like, all right, I'm not going to make any money this, this month. How's this going to work? And uh, now borrowed a bunch of money and now I owe all this debt. So there's, there's some stress behind it, but it was really cool to be able to talk at the dinner table about business and about money. And they, that's, I think that was what the biggest gift they get. They didn't hide the, the business and the money from us. They were talking about it. It basically sort of got infused into me without me even knowing it. And I saw the lifestyle he had. He was always able to pick me up after school. He was able to go to my practices when I played sports. And I think that more than anything, I looked at that and I said, oh my, yeah, my dad was, had this really flexible lifestyle, even though he worked. I want that. I don't, you know, the other stuff's cool. Science is interesting. I still like read science for fun and I like biology and I like that kind of stuff. But you know, what, what, what you're going to do with your day-to-day life as a job, like that's, that's a whole nother story. That's like eight, 10 hours a day. And you better really like that lifestyle if you're going to do it. That's true. I mean, when I was growing up, you know, I did sports too. And I was always sad that neither of my parents could make it to any of our meets because they had work. And then I was all those other parents like, oh, how come these people can come through and I, my parents couldn't? So yeah. you know, when I when I have kids, eventually I do want to be that parent too, to like go there and be able to have the time to see and support your kid. Yeah. I mean, it's fortunately not everybody, everybody has to work, you know, make money. So I'm, I agree with you. I want to be there. I have two kids now, one's eight and one's 10. And just being there when they get off the bus, like I found is they're, they're in elementary school still, but they still think I'm cool and they still want to talk to me. So that's, that's pretty nice. Uh, you know, five years from now, that'll be like the opposite of that. Uh, but you know, that right when they get off the bus, those first five minutes are when they like, just tell you everything about the day. And if you're not there, that you miss it. So it's, it's, you know, it's my little selfish reason as a parent, but that's kind of cool to do that and to, to be there with your kid. So after that first year of like shadowing your dad and helping him buy more properties, uh, what was it that you did when you moved out and kind of did everything on your own? 
So I mentioned my business partner. He was just a friend of mine. He he had a hit an internet business that I and I met him through when I was playing football at Clemson. It was related to football and sports. And so I, I just asked him if I could move into his spare bedroom. Like we talked about uh starting a business together. And his dad had some old mobile homes and things like that. So we were both were kind of on the same page. We went to some classes together. And so we had this idea, we built a business plan and it wasn't real formal. We just said, I think we can find deals that we can flip. And my my I had a real simple formula. And then, you know, you being in the, the, the lending business, you recognize these formulas, but I, I wanted to buy a property for about 70 cents on the dollar all in. So like if a property is worth a hundred, I want to have no more than $70,000 invested in that property, including purchase, including repairs, including holding costs, closing costs, everything. I was successfully doing that with my, my father, finding him deals to buy. And so I talked to my business partner and said, I think we can find deals like this in South Carolina. I was in Georgia where I grew up. And so we put a business plan together. So that was the formula. We're going to find those. Uh, we put a, a plan together to find those deals primarily through uh, foreclosure properties, like going to realtors and finding banks would take the properties back. But then a whole lot of other marketing stuff I'm happy to talk about too, just like direct mail and uh, signs. I put signs on my car that, you know, that said I buy houses. And so I was just doing everything because this was full time for me, um, but not making any money at first. Like I had to just live off of some savings that I'd made from the prior year. Um, and then we also had to find the money for the deals because I didn't have a lot. Of, I had good credit, but I didn't have a job. So if I, I walked into a bank, they were like, uh, what, what are you doing? Like, do you have a business? So like, yeah, we're flipping houses. Like, How much money have you made? Uh, nothing yet. That's why I need you to loan me some money. It wasn't a, like a traditional kind of situation for lenders. So we went to private lenders, essentially. Like we, I found a professor at uh, the school at Clemson University that I, I had met and I showed him my formula. I said, hey, I think I can find properties worth 100,000 or 150,000 and I'm going to buy them really cheap. Would you loan me the money or help me come up with the money if I find the deal? And we worked out an arrangement and that's 80, 90% of the properties we bought over the years have been with private individuals like that uh, who put up the money. Very cool. So I guess there's two things here. There's like how you find these deals that are like 70 cents on the dollar all in. Mm -hmm. And then there's the money component to it. So let's talk about the deal first. You know, you're starting this, what, like 2003, 2004? Yeah, 2003. So it's right kind of the beginning of another kind of hot market run up. And like, were there like a lot of foreclosures back then? There were, and it got, I mean, as you got closer to 2007 and eight, it got a lot more, you know, that was the big, one of the big causes of the the great recession was there was a lot of subprime lending and a lot of bad loans were done. So yes, there, there were foreclosures and that was a, I'd say healthy, it's not healthy at all for the, you know, for the economy, but there was a good number of those. So we specialized in short sales, for example, where we would send out direct mail to people who, or maybe a payment or two behind on their mortgage. And we would just just have a personal letter and say, "Hey, if you're if you're considering selling the, the property, I noticed that the, on the public records there, there's a you know there's a foreclosure pending. You know, if you want to sell your property, please give me a call. We'd be happy to talk to you." And so we would do that. And some of the times we just buy it and just help them pay off the loan. Obviously, it's got to be at a lower price in that case. Uh, other times, a lot of a lot of them did not have any equity in the property. They had like a hundred thousand dollar first mortgage and a fifty thousand dollar second mortgage on a two hundred thousand dollar house or a hundred and eighty thousand dollar house. And so we would negotiate with that second mortgage and offer them five thousand bucks for their fifty thousand dollar second mortgage. And that second mortgage is in the position where it might have been like a line of credit or something, where if they don't come up with a hundred thousand dollars, they're gonna lose a hundred percent of what they have on that second mortgage. So they're not in a really good negotiating position. And it didn't happen every time, but we were often able to come up with cash to pay off the second mortgage, the cash to pay off the first mortgage. And maybe now we buy it for 105000 And the seller 
um, they have a they have some tax implications to that because there's some debt forgiven. They have like forty five thousand dollars in debt forgiven, so they have some income on their tax return, but they don't have to pay that forty five thousand dollars back. Uh, we are negotiating that, so we came, kind of became specialists in that little niche of real estate investing called pre foreclosure short sales. Did a whole lot of that, but then we also branched out into um, direct mail to landlords who are you know evicting tenants to landlords who are just kind of tired of being a landlord. Uh, we buy properties from people who inherited properties. And let's just say, for example, there's three heirs to the property. One's in California, one's in New York, one's in Chicago. They own a property in South Carolina that their parents had. And who's going to come back and fix this property up? You know, and, and the person who does come fix it up, they're going to spend all this time and their brother and sister are going to get the same amount of money they are. So there's really not a big motivation in those cases to try to fix it up to the best, you know, to the best it could be. They just want to sell it as is. So we often bought properties like that as well. And these are before the days of like, you know, property radar, prop stream. How did you find out about all these different things? Yeah, there were still some list uh, companies out there. I mean, so direct mail has been going on in other forms for a long time, you know, like all the way back in the probably 50s, 60s or before. So there were, there were some out there that weren't quite as sophisticated. I, I even remember going, when I first started, this shows you like how quickly software changed over a few years. I went to the local tax assessor and there was nothing online right that year. And it, it, about three years later, it got online. And I, I was like, can I get some data for all the pop property records? And it was like, in this, I had to like wind through all these little offices in the back corner this dark room was like this, you know, IT guy was like typing away. And I was like, can I get a, get all the data? And he gave me a CD. He like burned a CD with like all of the property records and handed me the CD. I was like, yes, I've got all the property records in, in my county. And I went home and like messed around with, you know, the Excel and all that. And built I built mailing lists out of that um, to do like multi-unit properties and out-of-town owners and things like that. But we would also, uh, I used to go with my laptop to the uh, court records, same thing. They weren't online yet. And then I would take my laptop and just get the physical folders for all the eviction records in our county. And I would just one by one, all right, here's such and such. They did this. And I would just spend like two or three hours up there doing that. Same as foreclosures with everything. So every, there's always a list but it used to be more, you had to manually do it. Now there's, there's still some that are manual. And I would say those are your better opportunities because there aren't as, not as much competition, but you do have prop stream. You do have, you know, a lot of these other, other types of software that make it a little bit easier. Exactly. And that's kind of like the, the trade-off, right? Like back in the day when it was a lot harder, you and maybe 10 other people were the only ones with that CD yeah. because you were the only one who actually went there to get it. Now I can do deals in Georgia from California because I have prop yeah. stream, right? Yeah. Yeah, I would, but I would say that's a theme of business, like whatever business we're in. If you can find ways that things are difficult, your first impulse, my mine was too, that, that like don't do that because that's hard. But you should actually be like gravitating towards the more difficult things. Like if there's a barrier to entry, that's and it's hard to solve. You ought to be asking the question, how can I solve that? Instead of you know it, the, the easiest stuff is going to be over. It's going to be it's going to be commoditized. Like people are going to do that too much. Whereas if it's going to be a little bit more difficult. There, there are opportunities like that today. I don't, you know, you got to think about what those are. I like driving for dollars because it's just a little bit harder to scale that. And so just riding around a neighborhood or paying somebody to ride around a neighborhood for you is always just a nice on the ground, difficult to scale type thing where you can see properties one by one and just point at them and put them on a list and mail to them and use software. You know, you can use software to do that too. Uh, but I think that's a, that's an example of something that's a little more difficult to scale Therefore, the Zillows of the world, the the you know the all the big national buyers are going to have a harder time competing with that. 
Yeah, makes sense. You know, I was also wondering back in the day, right, 2003, 2004, it seemed like it's a different market than it is now. So for someone that's just getting started, it's probably not that easy to go on a foreclosure list. Well, of course, you know, uh, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I think it's harder to get deals on foreclosure lists than anywhere before, or you recommend people do now to find deals. There's, there's fewer foreclosures now because we've had more appreciation. So the, the, good, the good thing for homeowners now is that if, if they are behind on payments or something, they could probably just put it on the market and sell it pretty quickly. Um, but that being said, there are always personal situations that cause people need to sell it quickly and not put it on the market. And so I think there, sometimes we get in our own heads as investors and we put ourselves in somebody else's shoes. And I, I've negotiated with, I say negotiate, I've sat in front of hundreds of sellers, people who own properties and made offers to them. And what I found is like, that's the differentiating factor is like when you're the person who's in front of somebody else saying, I will buy your house and here's what I'll pay for it. Like that, that is what is separates you from everybody else. Not, you, you might not be any better than these other investors, but if you're willing to hustle and like get in front of people, there are situations where people are like, I just need to do this. Like, I just need to sell this house today. The first person I talk to, I'm going to move on. And so there are pre foreclosures today. It's not a market I, I specialize in now just because I'm a little bit more lazy and I don't want to hustle as much. But I mean, it's a good question to ask. If I were starting over today, I would still try to reach out to people who are in situations that motivate them a little bit more than just the other, just sitting on the market and trying to get top dollar. Like I would still look for evictions. Like today with all these eviction mandates, I would be sending letters to every single landlord in town who's had an eviction in the last month or two or who's filed one in the last year because maybe it got stalled you know and you know out of 100 landlords there's gonna be like five or ten who are just like i'm fed up with this business i want to get rid of this property i'm sick of you know california or whatever state you're in where they're trying to mandate them that you can't evict there's going to be some motivation there so it may, may, not, may or maybe not be foreclosures because foreclosures there aren't as many now but uh, I would still try it, you know, just don't assume, just try that, try eviction landlords. There's still people dying in the United States. There's still people inheriting properties. Uh, you know, all of, I think the principles work because we're all human beings. The market has changed a little bit and that it's a, it's a little, it's a hotter market and, and interest rates have been lower for a longer period of time, but people are people. And if if you know your market and you know how to flip houses, you know how to get financing, they're, the interest rates are a lot lower than they were when I was buying. So it's a lot easier if you get a good deal to make it cash flow and hold it than it was in 2004. So there's there's pluses and minuses to every market. Yeah. Like, I, again, as an example, like personal example, like my fiance, Sharon and I, we're actually moving. I think we mentioned this to you a couple months ago. Yeah. We're moving to a new location. Like we've never really lived in Texas. So we're moving to Dallas. Okay. Uh, I know the Bay Area. I know the Bay Area market pretty well. I understand the challenges there. For you, let's assume that you're moving out of like South Carolina, you go into a new market. What would you do to start all over to start getting more deals? And again, assume you don't have your hundred units where you can just chill. You're trying to, you're trying to get back into it. Uh, I start with the people and I would start with the market knowledge, those two things. So I, like I've been, I've had really good luck with uh, local real estate meetups in particular, I'm, I'm part of like a real estate investing association in South Carolina. So in the upstate of South Carolina, we just have, it's just a club basically where people go for education and for networking. And almost every week, there's a, a small group that gets together for lunch or breakfast. I would just immerse myself in whatever city I'm in, in that group and just talk to people. Um, not because every, every single person is going to know everything, but you'll start getting a sense of what's working, what's not working, who people are, what people are like, what's the, how are people negotiating here? And you just, there, there's just some, some intuitive knowledge you want to get from networking. 
Um, but the other thing you'll get there is you'll find people who have money. You, I've, I've bought a lot of deals from other investors. For example, like I'm in Clemson, South Carolina, and you know the, the place where I go to this meetup is in Greenville, 45 minutes away. And you know, not everybody invests in Clemson. So if every once in a while, some of my friends in that group will say, oh, I've got a deal in Clemson. This, you know, this deal came across my lap. They'll call me because they know I'm in Clemson. So, I, so at first I would go start networking, meeting people. The other thing I would do is just start driving and walking for dollars. Like if I wanted to start tomorrow with a new business, if I'm in Dallas, I would pick one little neighborhood and I would try to get as small as I could on that neighborhood. And I would just start farming street by street, looking for vacant properties, looking for fixer uppers, looking for, for sale by owners, looking for, for rent by owners. And every single property I find like that, those four vacants, fixer uppers, for sale by owner, for rent by owner, I would try to contact the owner in all those, those cases. Um, and then try to reach out to them and buy their property. And so I just get a mailing list. I'd probably start off if I want to do it on a budget. I would just do it by hand. Just like go home, have 20 properties, you know, just send send them a letter, have a bunch of envelopes. Hand, maybe I'd print them off, you know, print the letters off, but personalize it at the bottom or something. And, I, you know, in a day, I would have 20 letters going out the door and start generating some leads while I'm also networking. And so I would have some of those networking of people. I would, I would have some wholesalers or some flip people who are flipping houses some landlords who I could call up and say, Hey, this person's called me with this deal. They want to sell it for this price. Is that a deal? And that's a key component there because you can borrow expertise from somebody else. Yeah. I actually found that some of our best deals have actually come from wholesalers, which is kind of interesting, you know? Yeah. Cause sometimes wholesalers get a bad rap. Uh, for like overpricing a deal, but yeah. you can actually get it for pretty good if you do the numbers right. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, wholesalers have to make money, but they are out there hustling. Like they're they're doing all that work of making offers to people. That's basically what I was doing back in the day when I was doing all the short sales, and I would wholesale a good number of my properties. So yeah, it's I think you're I think you're right. Yeah, just leverage other people, and you know if you look at ten wholesale deals, maybe one or two of them will be, will be decent. The rest of them are going to be crap. You know, you just got to throw those out. But that's always the way it is. You know, you're never you're never going to bat a hundred percent. I've done direct mail before. I've probably sent out like 10,000 letters in like different batches. Uh, Sharon is more conservative, right? She wants to send maybe like a hundred at a time, just test the waters. I'm thinking like a right. hundred letters probably won't get you any response, right? Cause the percentages are so low. The odds are really against you. Uh, what are your thoughts on volume of direct mail? Yeah, it depends on what list you're doing. So if you're doing like a cold list, like a, let's say you got all 10,000 names of people who live out of state, but they own a property in, in a certain neighborhood of Dallas, uh, you're right. Like, I mean, getting a half percent or 1% response rate would be off the charts. Like, that'd be great. So 100 letters getting one call would be about what you'd expect, right? Um, and then if you sent 500 letters, maybe getting five calls and out of those five, probably one or two of them are just angry that you're sending them a letter. Uh, so that's that's just real. So that's with big lists, that's that's true. Um, you need to be, it's, it's a long game, it's a money game. Like you got to put a lot of money into that and you got to be a good copywriter. You got to do something interesting. You got to make yourself stand out. Like uh, a, a friend of mine, I think you know him too. Uh, Henry Washington is on, um, who's a Instagram and an investor in Arkansas. He was just experimenting with uh, some postcards that had a picture of his dog on them, and like the, the dog had a little, you know, thought bubble saying, "Hey, I'd like to buy your house." And then on the other side, it was like another dog saying, "No, no, no, I'm like, sell it to me. I'm the better dog." Or you know, it was like something kind of cool. It was just like interesting, like a little cartoon, and it was like it could be his real dog, and it has a real phone number on there. And it's just like that stands out that maybe that works, maybe it doesn't, but like that's marketing. Like if you, I think the ultimate sin of marketing is being boring. 
So if you like, you're boring, that's not going to work. Um, so, but then on the other side of that, you know, that's a big list. What I'm talking about with direct mail to like a driving for dollars list, that's a very like laser targeted list. So I think the, what you're trying to do with that is, is try you're, you're handpicking properties in a certain location and you're handwriting them or you're, you're spending a little more effort and time and money. Like even if you didn't handwrite it, like I used to send like a, uh, pay five bucks or four bucks or whatever, like the next level, you know, post office like envelope is. And I would send like express mail to these people who are on my list. So I spent a few little bit more money, but my open rate was like five times what it was, was with a regular number 10 envelope or something. So when you have a more targeted list, you can spend more effort, energy, or money uh, sending to them to try to get them open. Like to the point, like if it was a valuable enough list, if I had like 10 people that I knew at one of those properties, I might send them a box like you know with a gift or something in it like you can do, get really creative with the types of things you send and just make it stand out make it so it's so interesting that even if they don't want to sell you the property they would call you back because you're just like you're just an interesting person yeah um, that's what that's good marketing and are you personally taking all of these calls the inbound calls from your direct mail marketing efforts in a simple scenario yeah like i used to take all of them but pretty quickly i started getting an answering service because i was doing i was spending two thousand bucks a month uh, in marketing i was doing radio ads i was doing all sorts of stuff so as i turned the volume up on my lead, lead generation as i was buying more deals then i would have a, a answering service to help me take the calls and then i would just have them fill out a form on my website um they would you know have all the, the questions they would ask the seller and then that would come to my email and then it would just help me with some time management because you know if you're getting leads all day long uh, that can be crazy. Um, so I would just like, I would get, I would do my kind of quiet, deep work in the morning and then starting about one or one o'clock all the way to about five, call, 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 appointment, appointment, appointment. That'd be my like sales, my sales time. And then the mornings were like thinking, marketing, analyzing deals, doing stuff like that. That's a good problem to have, having too many deals that you just outsource the, and plus like, you know, like you said, some people call you and they're mad and you don't need to take yeah. those calls. Or sometimes people will sell you a house that's way over market value, right? You don't need to take those calls either. But the ones that are interesting, you can call them back and follow up with them. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You, we kind of pre-screen them by asking them to talk to this person right here. Um, and so that was that was just a form of seeing how motivated they were. Uh, so it, yeah, it worked pretty well. It's, it is a volume game though. That's where marketing comes in. You need to generate a lot of leads to get a few people who are, might be a good candidate. Okay. Very cool. So let's shift over to the other part, which is raising money. So you mentioned that you know when you were first getting started, you maybe didn't have as much funds as you would like. And so you have to rely on raising funds from other people to help you with the deals. How do you convince your professor to give you money if you don't have a track record? I think the, th the biggest aha moment for me was thinking like somebody who has money. So I know you, you, know, you, and, you and Sharon have done great. You've, you've built equity. You now have some money. The thing that for those of us who've accumulated some money, the worst case scenario for us is losing that money. Like, oh, wait a minute. Like I've just made a million dollars and now I've lost it all. Like, so, so I, I try to get inside the head of my professor and I asked him questions and I realized that like the number one thing he was looking at was like safety and security. Like, I know he wanted it. He wanted a good return as well. Like, I think he wanted a 10% return at the time, but safety was number one. This is like the Warren Buffett maxim. Like what's rule number one of investing? Don't lose money. What's rule number two? Don't forget rule number one. And so like, so the, what, what I did to convince him was show him that I understood that. And going back to that 70% rule, my, my, my deal was like, I'm going to treat you just like a bank. If you loan me 70,000 bucks, or I know we're using small numbers in that case, like multiply that times five to, you know, for, for another investor. Uh, but, you know, 
I'm going to give you a loan on this property and you're going to also have a mortgage. So I'm going to sign a promissory note that I promise to pay you back at whatever terms we agree to. I'm going to give you a mortgage or a deed of trust, depending on what state you're in. And the amount of money I'm going to borrow from you is never going to be more than 70% of what the property is worth. So, so that was the security uh, because he's a real estate guy. Like he, he understands real estate and I, we would always joke about it. We would say, you know, I know you like me and I hope you trust me, but if I ever got run over by a bus and I died or like I'm on one of my trips and I, my airplane crashes, you know, or something. So I hope you come to my funeral. hope you're a little bit sad, but when you're done, you should be actually excited about the deal that you loan money on because you now are even better shape because you've got this deal that's a really good property at a really low uh, basis. And so you should be protected. And so that, that was how I got the money from him. And it's pretty consistent with other investors too. And even banks, like banks think a little differently. Lenders, they think a little bit differently. They have more institutional sort of guidelines, but it's all the same. Like the people who fund your deals, they just don't want to lose their money. And then once they know that's the, that's okay, then they want to get a good, a reasonable return, a risk adjusted return. And so the less risk they're taking, the better actually interest rate you can get. Like I've, I've borrowed money at, you know, 50% loan to value. And that's such a safe loan for some of my private lenders that I could ask them for an even lower interest rate. I might say, Hey, you know, this, this really low, low loan to value. How about 4%, four and a half percent when they might loan me 6% or 10% on a, on a riskier deal. Yeah. Um, I'm a lender too, right? I do hard money loans all the time. And most people call me always want the max leverage, right? They want 90% of purchase price. They want hundred percent of rehab and they barely have enough liquid reserves for the 10% down payment. Like they don't have enough right. money for holding costs, right? Interest payments, like they're tapped out. I'm like, there's no way we can give you this loan, right? You need to have the funds to do this deal. We want you to be successful. You don't want you to yeah. lend all your money and you run out. And then of course, if you're max leveraged and then the market turns, dude, you're, then you're screwed because you have no buffer there. And then we're screwed as a lender because then we yeah. gonna lose money. Yeah. And you're hundred percent right, Sean. And I, I bet some people listening might say though, well, wait, what about having any money? Like you just saying, I can't get started. Cause that's the way, I, that's where I was. That That's a good question. And you got to ask yourself, if you, ha- if you have no money, you, you can't get a loan with Sean or with anybody, right? You got to have some reserves. You got to have some cash in the bank. So how can you do that? You've got to borrow that from somebody else, or you've got to get a partner. And this, this was such a key. I'm glad you asked that because this is such a key part of what we did was if, if I'd been selfish and always wanted to t- take 100% for myself, I would have never gotten started and I would have never grown. So instead I said, well, I don't have enough resources. I don't have any capital. So I need to partner with somebody else who does have some. And I'm, what that means is I'm going to have to split that pie with that person uh, in some form or fashion, maybe 50-50, it might be 70-30, who knows? But like, I just always was willing to split the pie to the point where when I'm a brand new investor, I'm willing to take like 10% of the pie and give away 90% as long as I can get my deal done. Because 10% of a pie is better than no pie. Yeah. I've only raised private funds a handful of times. And again, usually they're from like friends or family members. I've never reached out to like colleagues or associates, right? Um, I was wondering like, what are some typical partnership structures that you like to do for some of your deals? I've actually kept it really simple. Like early on, we got a little complicated where we put an LLC together and there's three partners and we had an operating agreement. I quickly just tried to move on from that because not that that's not legitimate, not that like syndications and these big complicated structures are not good. Like they are, especially if you're raising like 10, 20, $30 million or something. But we were always doing smaller deals, like one at a time. And so what we've tried, I have two different forms of partnerships we've done. 
one, I have my, my main business partner and the two of us are equity partners together. We actually started with like 500 bucks. So like we didn't have, we didn't have a lot of money. We put, I put 250, he put 250. There we go. Um, but we, we are 50, 50 partners and we own these companies together. So that's, you know, we have an operating agreement. We have a buyout clause. You know, there's, there's things that go into having a partnership like that. We have an LLC uh, that we own stuff in. Um, the other form of partnerships we did that are money, you know, money partners, but they're not really partnerships. They're just private loans where we just pay somebody interest. Um, that's, that's my preference. Like if you can keep it as simple as possible, I think that's better. My recommendation to people is always start with the simplest scenario that's easy for everybody to understand. Like if you could explain this to your friend or family member who knows nothing about real estate and they can get it in like a minute or two, like that's good. Like that's simple enough. And so for me, like borrowing money from somebody at 70 cents on the dollar, paying them 6% interest, paying them interest only, like that's that's been a, a real cookie cutter for me is doing something like that. And it used to be like, I'd have to pay them back in five years as I built a relationship with them. We pushed that back to 10 years or 15 years. So I had a lot of these lenders who they liked getting 6% interest from me because if they were to put it in the bank and make half percent, that was you know, that was bad. So they would just say, no, keep it active. Like keep, I want you to buy more deals. Like just keep paying me interest. I was paying for their groceries. I was paying for their retirement. Um, so that the professor that I borrowed money from 18 years ago, we're still paying him today. And we're actually about to pay him off. <laughs> we just had that conversation because we're just paying off a lot of our debt. And it's been, it was kind of a nostalgic moment though. We're like, wow, we've been doing this for 18 years. And I, I really want to total up all the interest we paid just to see like, this, the, he said, he's like, you've added a lot of value to me. And the other way around, he's added a ton of value to us because we would have never gotten started without him. Yeah. Can we go over a quick example of like a deal in your market? What are typical like purchase prices? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I'm just thinking this year I bought a, a prop, I bought a little small single family house a year ago for 125,000. And then I put 25,000 into it. So it's 150,000. And it rents for about a thousand bucks. And this is not, no deals typical, right? But this, this property actually had a little tiny house and three acres. And so I'm going to sell off two acres of that pro pro property for about 40 grand. And then I'll keep the rest of it. So we'll have about 110 grand in it, rent it for a thousand bucks. Actually it might be a thousand fifty now. I think we've upped the rent this year. Um, so yeah, that's, that's one that's right in Clemson where I live. That's not a typical deal. I mean, people listening to this in Clemson might be like, I've never seen that kind of deal. Well, like, it was on the market for a long time for 150 or 165, something like that. And I just followed it, followed it, followed it. It was on the MLS and I just knew something about it. I knew something about that location and just made an offer negotiated like later on once it, once it wasn't, didn't sell. Yeah. So from the 125 purchase price and the 25 K rehab, how did you finance that? Uh, private money, hundred percent private money, $125,000 private money, $25,000 of our money. I'm remembering that right now. Okay. Uh, is that like a 70% or are you kind of doing 70% on the future value? Once it's yeah. Future value is, it's worth more after we put the 25 grand in it's worth, worth more. So let's, let's figure out what that, I'm pretty sure it would sell with that acreage, especially for 170 or so, 175 or so somewhere in there. Yeah, it's, it's hard to find anything in Clemson under 200 grand. That's what was kind of unusual about, about this deal. So like the median price in Clemson, and we're, we're a college town. It's, you know, 15, 20,000 people in the town. Um, it's in a southern southern state. I mean, the I think the median income in our area in this town is probably 
you know, 70, 80 grand, something like that. But then we have a lot of students rentals as well. So like somebody buying 180,000, 200,000 our house in, in our, in the greater Clemson areas is, is pretty normal. Like brand new construction houses are selling for 220, 225, the entry level. So is this kind of like the structure you typically do where you can get a private money lender to fund like a majority of the purchase price, you come in with a rehab budget and then yep. the lender or yeah, the private money lender is cool because they know that this is less than 70% of the ARV. Correct. And this is a long, long, a lot of years of trust with this private lender too. So yeah, I think on the first deal we did, like if I came to you, Sean, and I was like, Sean, we've never done business together. You don't really know me. I, I would be more ready to put more money down in that case. Like, so maybe I would have done a hundred thousand dollar loan, me put 25,000 down, me put in 25,000 of my own money to rehab it. So then I'd have a $50,000 in it. And then it would be worth 170. And hopefully you like get to see how I do that and see, yeah, Chad, he does a good job. Like I pay it early, like every month is early. Um, I'm communicating with you early. Like you never have to ask me twice for anything. Like every little thing I would be trying to demonstrate how trustworthy I am and that I'm a really good person to work with so that the next deal you're like, okay, let's do this again. Same thing. He treated me the same way. So by the fourth, fifth, sixth deal it's like Chad's, Chad's good. Like I know how he's going to treat me and I feel good about that. Do you ever have any issue with your private money lenders like running out of money? Yeah. Yeah. So for sure. I mean, it's a, it's a balance. Like I used to um, borrow money from some family members. Like I had my grandmother who, who at Thanksgiving was, I was just starting my business and she's like, she's worried about me. Cause she's like, are you surviving? You moved up to Clemson. He, he says he's doing real estate. He was gonna be a doctor. Now he's like doing real estate. And she's like, oh, I don't know. And she's worried about me. And she's like, what are you doing? It's like, well, we're flipping houses. She's like, you don't have any money. Like, where, how are you flipping houses? And I was like, oh, we pay these guys, this professor I'm at 10% interest. And she's like, 10%? And this is like somebody born in the Great Depression. You know, she's like, you can't pay somebody 10%. You're going to go out of business. And so I explained my business model and she wasn't in the business, but I showed her the 70%. And I was like, yeah, this is how I can afford because I'm flipping houses and making 30,000 or 20,000. So if I pay, somebody loans me 100,000 and I pay them 10% for six months, that's $5,000. So, you know, okay, that's, yeah, they make 5,000, but I'm making 25. That's great. Um, and she's like, really? Oh, you know, her, her kind of light bulb moment went on and she's like, I have some money that I inherited from my brother. It's, you know, $75,000. Could we do something like that? And I'm like, sure. <laughs> like, let's, let's. So my grand, grandmother, like over the Thanksgiving meal, like I decided to start loaning some money. So obviously she didn't have any more than, I think she ended up having 150 or so or something like that. Um, but other people I've had, I, I, I found other investors who had, more capital, but even they might tap out at 250, 500,000, you know, somewhere in there. So I've had to get a collection of people like that kind of in that range. And if I were in a much higher price market, or if I was going for really big properties, I probably wouldn't be able to make that business model work. I would probably have to get into syndications or I've also borrowed some bank money, you know, commercial banks. And I like, like your, your business, Sean, like if, if you had, if I'd known somebody like you with your kind of loan products, when I first started, I don't think they were there at that point. I think it was sort of a new, these investor loans and kind of national level uh, hard money and 30 year fixed financing without having to go do traditional loans. Like that was not a thing. And I, I would be much more inclined to work with somebody like you at this point. And maybe, you know, I would still do some private money, but it'd be a lot easier for me to, have to be able to do repeat business with you who's, who has a little bit deeper pockets to be able to do more deals. Right. Yeah. Like, we actually take on a lot of people who were doing private money for their like long-term buy and holds. Because as you know, like after your 10th loan, 
normal banks would just shut you off and you're pretty much on your own devices. So people would have to consolidate, right? And like pay out the small ones and get a big fat loan on one of the bigger ones. Right. Or they would go private money route. You know, they would get maybe six to 8% uh, for like, who knows, 10 years, 20 years. Yep. For, so now we're doing loans at like 4% for 30 year fixed. They're like, oh my God, like, give me, give it to me. <laughs> yeah. Cause you're saving half, you know, you're going from 8% to 4% or 6% to 4%. That's a, you know, on a, on a, a million dollar portfolio or, you know, whatever you're, you're talking real money. Yeah, exactly. And it's, we even have like a 10 year interest only version too. So it's like a 30 year program, but the first 10 years are interest only. Then you pay off the 20 years as like an amortized payment. So yeah, you know, the game's changed. I love it. I mean, I, lo- I love these products and I'm, I'm telling people who are coming to me and asking for advice. I'm like, you, you need to, you need to be looking at this stuff. These are, these loans are great. Yeah. But I mean, I guess the downside is because it is more institutional type money, there are a bit more like regulations, like a prepayment penalty period. Whereas yeah. private money lending is like, all right, it's your friend. Here's the money. Have fun, right? As long as they trust you. Yeah. Yeah. And you, it's all negotiable with private money, but yeah. But I mean, even a prepayment penalty, like you just, when you get a 30 year loan, you just know that like that person's trying to lock their money up and make a return over the long run. They don't want to get paid off in a year or two from now. Like my, if I did that with my private lenders, they'd probably be pissed too. Like they'd be like, Hey, wait a minute. Like I'm not doing more business with you. I like, I want my money to be sitting there. Like don't pay me off. So that like, even a prepayment penalty, I think makes sense. And in those cases where you're, you're buying a long-term rental, you just need to hold it for at least three years to get through that or whatever that time period is. So then what's your plan, I guess, before, before all these like national 30 year fixed uh, loans came out uh, for your rental properties? Cause you know, you're holding them with private money. Yeah. Were you, what were your thoughts for like 10 years down the line? Yeah. I mean, I was just having to make sure I made enough money to pay 6% interest. Like that was, that was the, I had this good deals, you know, that it, here's like a basic formula. Like if I can buy a deal that has a 9%, or a 10% rental yield, meaning like it's a 9% income yield on all the investment I have in the property, the total cost of the property. And then I borrow money at 6%, then I'm making like a three to, you know, three to uh, 4% difference on the other money I'm borrowing. So like, that's, that's pretty much what we did. We just had a high cost of money though. Like, so it would have been, it was a trade-off for me though. Cause I could have gone to local banks. Like I had a good relationship with local banks. And actually we did go to local banks and we could get money at like 4% or three, you know, we, we just got a loan from a couple of years ago on a bigger property for 3.1 or 3.2% from a, from a commercial kind of local bank. And then, but then they had a 20 year amortization and a seven year balloon basically. And, and so that's risky, you know, like having a seven year balloon is not, I don't love that, but in that case it was worth just getting the deal done. And, and so it was also a lower interest rate. So we're, we're paying more loan. We're paying our amortizing our loan more, but there's also a risk there. Like if I had a hundred percent of my portfolio with these balloon notes, I'd be really nervous. I'd have a hard time sleeping at night. So we've just combined that with some private money, with some seller financing. We didn't talk about that, but we had a big chunk of our portfolio where sellers agreed to finance a property to us in some cases at 3%, some cases at 4%. I even had some deals where sellers uh, were willing to do 0%. Because of, we just asked for it. We negotiated and put a bigger down payment. We uh, It was a really ugly property that needed a ton of work. So we put a bunch of repairs into it. And so the pr- part of the purchase price we negotiated was like, all right, we'll pay you $100,000 or $150,000, $50,000 down, plus we'll do $50,000 in repairs. So we got like $100,000 in that property. But the $100,000 we, that you finance for us on seller financing, we want to pay $500 a month until it's paid off. Zero, you know, No interest. And so that's, we had some sellers agree to that too. 
And so that's a you know, long-term fixed 0% mortgage. And there's some tax implications of that with imputed interest and some other kind of considerations, but uh, it was a good deal for us. And so we had a portion of our portfolio like that that were really good interest rates long-term, so we're not private money. So that's kind of what I was getting to. You mentioned the seven-year balloon. So I guess for the listeners who don't know what that means, it means that even though it's a 20-year like loan, you're paying it off on that schedule, at your seven, all the money's due, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. So you have to refinance, basically, or get another loan. Uh, when that happens, I mean, I guess, so to compare it with your private money lenders, weren't you saying that those were already on 10-year balloon notes anyway? So like, what's the kind of difference between that versus the bank loans? Yeah, my private lenders, I was I started negotiating more of like a 15, 10-year minimum, but more likely a 15-year was what we kind of settled on for a lot of ours. So that, that was my trade-off too. Like, I'll pay you 6% interest, but I want to have like this thing locked in for 15 years. And at the end of 15 years, I still owed, if I still owed a balance, we had, we, instead of a balloon note, we'd have a call and it's just a small, slight difference. It just means like we'll, we'll keep on going for 30 years. Uh, but at 15 years, if you want us, if you want us to pay you back, it's your right to call the loan at that point. So they just have to give us a 60 day notice or something like that. Um, so it's just, a, it's a little different than a balloon, a balloon, you have to pay it back no matter what. And with a local bank, like this goes back to some stories we probably have heard of before, like Dave Ramsey, or I had personal friends who had balloon notes. Like Dave Ramsey went bankrupt in like 87 or 88 because he had a bunch of commercial notes, just like I'm talking about, where either the balloon came up due or in a, in a big financial crisis, the bank said, hey, look on page 20 of your mortgage. There's this clause we have about liquidity. And if your properties have gone down in value a certain amount, we can call your loan due. Like there's this weird crap like that in every law. That's what, another reason I don't like bank mortgages. Um, and so they called his loans due. Like he had like $3 million worth of loans and they, he was a real estate investor just like us. And my understanding of the story is they said, hey, you have to pay it all back in the next 60 days. And he was scrambling and borrowing money and just couldn't get it all done. And that just like was a domino to him going bankrupt. You know, we're doing some commercial loans too for some of our properties over in Georgia. Same thing, right? Like not too bad, 4% interest rate, uh, 20 year M. And at first it was a five year, it was like a five year balloon. And I was like, can I like not do that? And they're like, don't worry. Like as long as you're making your payments, you know, we're going to refinance you. I'm like, eh, I don't trust it. Nah. So we converted to a five, five, you know, I'm like, okay, yeah. every five year automatically adjust the rate, but at least it's still a 20 year M mortgage. That's a much, that's much less risky. Yeah, I yeah. agree. Like a balloon is the most risky thing. I mean, don't let that word fool you. This is no birthday party. This is no like <laughs> happy balloons block. and all that. Yeah. That balloon is like a negative thing. And, and, and this is actually a good story because a part of 2008, nine and 10, not just in the real estate business, but you remember the whole crisis where like Goldman Sachs and GE and Bank of America, they all had to go get emergency loans with Warren Buffett. Because why? Because all of their lenders were calling their loans due. Like this was, this is not just us. Like we're, we're like piddly little small investors compared to Goldman Sachs and GE and these big S&P 500 companies. Like they were also super over leveraged and everybody's leveraged. Like the whole, the whole world is leveraged. The only question is what kind of leverage you have. And the safest kind of leverage you can have is something that does not have a big balloon on it so that you can ride out the storm. Um, so that if, you know, even if you had a little bit of negative cash flow because interest rates went up or rents went down, you can survive that by working an extra job, by eating beans and rice, whatever you got to do. But having a balloon where you have a million dollars come due at one time, like that's, 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 that'll, that'll kill your business. Yeah. Um, this is more of a technical question too, for you. How are you servicing all of these payments to your private money lenders? 
just automatic go to our bank and set up an automatic bill pay or if they're if they'll if, if it's easy to do sometimes one bank will automatically pay the other bank like ach type arrangement um so yeah we just i just try to automate as much as possible so that it just automatically goes out of our bank account every month um, and then you just have to watch your cash flow you just got to make sure got enough rent coming in there's always a big reserve there in case it doesn't time out right so if you have thirty thousand dollars or fifty thousand dollars going out the door in a month, you just got to make sure there's a nice big cushion there um, and that you manage your cash just by paying attention and watching what's going on. Okay, cool. So no third-party software. You can just go to the bank directly and have them do it. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And I use QuickBooks to, to track that. So we'll, we'll set up an automatic payment in our bank and that automatically goes to our private lender. And then we have an automatic uh, transaction in QuickBooks that, that mirrors that actual transaction. And you send them like a 1098 interest payment yep. or whatever for the yeah, end of the year. Yeah, we'll send them. We'll send our people we pay interest to 1099s, and then people who we receive payments from, we'll send 1098s. Mm-hmm. Hope I got that right. Yeah, yeah something like that. Now, yeah. what about? I know you have a big following as well, right? You have a whole Coach Carson platform. You're on YouTube, Instagram, uh, and also mailing list, right? Is that probably your? What would you say is like your most prevalent thing right now? Yeah. Well, like, yeah, email list has always been my main my main thing. I remember you and Sharon with a or at a uh, talk yeah, I did at FinCon about that. Great. That's where we met. Um, so that yeah, email list is it's kind of become vogue again. I think like email email was the old school thing that from the very beginning when I did, I, I still don't know what I'm doing half the time, but I was always like, okay, no matter what I do, I have an article. Like I need to ask people to sign up for my email list. Uh, so I have I think I have twenty six thousand people on my email list, and over the years I've trimmed that down. You know, I've I've, I've cleaned it up, and people who aren't opening letters will or opening emails will you know. Uh, drop them off the email list. But that's probably my number one, I would say, mode of communication. I do twice a week, uh, email everybody on the list. And it's more personal. You know, it's going directly to them. I can tell them what's going on in my life. I can ask them what's going on in their life. I can share things. Uh, if I have a course or something I want to sell, you know, every once in a while, that's the easiest way to, to promote that. Um, so that's, yeah, that's the top of my list. Although there's different functions for each one of those platforms from you know instagram social media or uh, youtube instagram facebook email list but i'd say email list is definitely my most important one for me and have you ever like just raised money from people who follow you or have they all been like people you actually known first you know that's that's something i have not done although i've seen some people doing it out there like uh, brandon turner a friend of mine at bigger pockets has done a good job of raising capital like for a big huge uh, syndications with his list like i think that's brilliant i think that's really smart uh, because it's in alignment you know he has a lot of people who want to invest and he they trust him and uh, but i haven't done that uh, i have all of the all of the private money i've borrowed uh, it was really pre social media for me like I, I was already had those relationships pretty much you know, just people i knew locally and so yeah i haven't haven't done that but i've considered you know could i do it either way. Like, could I loan money to people, you know, who are on, on my list or students? I've known I've done a little bit of that. Um, I'm also, you know, I'm starting trying to do a better job of being offering tools and resources other than just what I offer. Like I offer education. That's what I feel like my sweet spot is. I'm a good, I'm, my strength is being a teacher. So I have online courses, but there's other things that my audience needs. Like they need loans. They need, they need money. And so I'm, I'm trying to do that a little bit more now. I'm trying to, even if I'm not the one who loans them money, there are resources out there that I can pre-vet and pre-screen and then be an affiliate for these lenders. Um, so that I'm doing a little bit more of that. I'm doing a little bit more of like tools, like online property management tools. I'm teaching how to manage properties. I'm teaching how to buy rental properties. You know, why would I not 
try to pick my favorite uh, property management tool and then offer that to my audience. So that's, I'm trying to do a little bit better job of that. Yeah. I mean, the reason I ask, cause you know, Sharon and I, we get hit up all the time from people who reach out to us and say, Hey, you guys are doing these deals. Let me yeah. invest in your fund. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know if I want to take your money. Cause like, it's a long-term yeah. relationship, right? Like I'm holding on to your funds for five, 10 years. Right. Um, and it gets scary, especially if their, their things change, right? Like, Oh, I need the money back. Right. Like, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, taking somebody's money is a, it's a trust, you know, that's why they call it, the word is fiduciary relationship. And it's a fidelity is that like, there's another Latin word for trust. It's just a deep trust you have to have. And that's not, and I take that trust seriously. So when I borrow money from somebody or they invest with me, it's a slow process. Like this is not just, Hey, we meet tomorrow and let's do some deals. Like I want to know you, you should know me. We should talk several times. I should know about your life, your goals, what's going on. You should know about mine. We should be transparent. Um, it's this partnership, you know. That's 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 business at its best. And I, I heard a quote the other day, Sean. I can't remember who said it now, but it was like, if you're not willing to do business with somebody for 30 years, don't do business with them for a day. Like that that resonated with me so much because that's that's exactly what I found uh, in real estate too. It's like your biggest asset of these relationships you have with people. So like I'm I'm with you. Like it's I would be really slow to you know somebody has a two hundred thousand dollars to give me. I'd be like whoa 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 wait a minute you know like that number one I'm not borrowing any more money like I'm paying people off right now. Um, but number two like let's let's take this a little slower. I mean even with like long term partnerships the only person that I have really been in a long term partnership with is with Sharon right because you know she's my fiance. Mm-hmm. No problem. We're going to be together forever. But in terms of like business partnerships, it's always been like, oh, for this one flip, sure, here it is. For this one yeah. thing, sure, here it is. I, I don't yeah. know. Like, I mean, you seem like you're doing a great job with your partner because you've been with him for 18 years. Yeah, it doesn't always work that way, though. You know, I've, I've had had some old business people tell me when we first started, it's like, oh, partnerships never work. That'll never work. And I was like, well, I, I don't know. You know, we got lucky in some respects, but I, I like my mom and her dental practice, I'd always seen that she had a business partnership with her brother for decades and it worked really really well so that was another just lucky i was lucky to see hey there are ways that partnerships work really well and if you can do that like it's not just one plus one equals two when you have a good partnership it's like one plus one equals ten like it's it's a it's a synergy that really expands what you can do on the other hand though like if it goes bad like it'd be like it's not just one minus one like it's like one minus one equals negative ten you know you're gonna like blows up everything so that's why you want to be slow and doing a partnership and then communicate well. And I think the thing that, you know, we got lucky on with my business partner was that our goals were in alignment. Like if he had been wanting to scale and, you know, buy a thousand units and take over the world and be this like huge real estate investor. And I didn't, that would have been a tough tension. We probably would have broken it off earlier as it was though. We both had similar lifestyle goals. We had similar temperaments. Um, you know, we just got along. Neither one of us were trying to be like the the biggest and the best and always taking all the credit. You know, we're giving each other credit. So I, I just think it worked out just from a personality and goal standpoint, but that might not always be the case. Yeah, makes sense. So we're coming up at the end of our show today. Um, I guess what's next for you? And if you have any last tips that you can leave to our listeners. Yeah, I, I think what's next for me in real estate is just kind of the simple, boring stuff of, uh, you know, we've built a pretty good portfolio and it's just securing that portfolio and making sure that it's going to still be here 20, 30 years from now. So we're actually paying off debt as like unsexy as that sounds. Um, selling a couple properties here and there that maybe are not our best properties, using that cap, paying taxes on it in some cases, and then using that money to pay off debt on other properties. 
so that's, you know, that's just part of our, it's part of what I teach what I wrote and I wrote the book, retire early with real estate. I just encourage people to think about that over the long run, try to keep your business as simple as it can, as safe as it can over the long run. And that's not to say you shouldn't take some risk and borrow money. Like I've, I borrowed a lot of money, um, but there's almost two, there's sort of two phases in your business. There's this growth phase where leverage is great, where hustle is great, where you're trying to get big, big, big. But then there's also this second phase, which is stability and income and security. And so different people are going to reach that want to get there sooner than later, just depending on your risk tolerance. And we, it's taken, you know, we're been in business 18 years, 19 years now. And for the last three or four years, it's been more about that. It's been more about simplify, pay off debt. And because we've got enough, like we've, we've reached this point where we could buy more properties, but why would we do that? It would have to be a really good reason to do that because we have enough money. Um, it's more about like, let's take care of, let's take care of the foundation. And then the, the next question, this is a great question is like, what are you gonna do with your time? Like if you're not, if you used to spend 50 hours a week or 60 hours a week buying properties and doing all that, and now you only need to spend an hour kind of managing the, the your managers, like, what am I gonna do with the rest of that time now? And that's where I'm like teaching. I really enjoy teaching. I started a local nonprofit with some friends to try to do something I'm passionate about, which is making bike, uh, biking and walking easier uh, in our town because it's horrible. Like all the path, there's no good way, a quarter mile away, I'm trying to walk to a park and you get run over by a big truck, you know? Um, so we've been for five years now working on trying to build a network of biking and walking trails, which is important to me. It's in my local town. And then, you know, just traveling and being with my family, uh, going abroad. So that, that's, like that's the, the ultimate question is what do you, what matters to you? That's the motto of my channels. I do what matters and that's different for everybody. But when you can take care of the money side of things, then it's almost like you're a, a growing up and you're a big kid again. Like, all right, what am I going to do now? Like, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And it's a pretty exciting uh, question to ask yourself. Yeah. So interesting. Like a lot of people, especially on these different platforms, they always talk about like why pay off properties, get your loans at 3% and ride them forever. But here yeah. you are saying, no, I, I want to pay them off because I want that stability. I want the security. I don't want balloons to blow up in my face. Mm -hmm. um, and now you're able to do your passion projects, which is ultimately why many people get into real estate in the first place. So yeah. well, thanks again for exactly. those, those words of advice. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. All right, Chad. Well, thank you again so much for coming on the show. Um, really appreciate it and hope to have you back on in the near future. Yeah, I'd love to do it, Sean. Good to see you again. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, join our meetup group where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. And if you thought this was a great episode, let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.